I'll invite you to turn in your Bible to Judges chapter 15, the book of Judges chapter 15, as we continue in this story of um, a very unlikely hero, Samson. Uh, The title of my message tonight is Samson's War, and we'll be looking at uh, chapter 15 as as Samson finally uh, sort of comes to his senses, realizes um, his calling and, and uh, lays hold of that and ascends, it becomes the judge of, of Israel. Uh, chapter 15, uh, the story begins uh, after the debacle of uh, chapter 14 where um, Samson, if you remember, uh, had a, was at the wedding feast and told this riddle and um, the men threatened his wife and she uh, begged him to tell her the, the answer to the riddle. Uh, so he did. She told her people. They um, they um, solved the riddle, and then Samson owed thirty pairs of clothing. So Samson went and killed thirty men in Ashkelon and took their clothes and paid off the the debt. Well, that's where we pick it up. Verse uh, chapter fifteen, verse one. Let's give our attention to God's word. After some days, at the time of the wheat harvest, Samson went to visit his wife with a young goat, and he said, "I will go into my wife in the chamber." But her father would not allow him to go in. And her father said, I really thought you, uh, that you utterly hated her, so I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? Please take her instead. And Samson said to them, This time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. So Samson went and caught 300 foxes and took torches, and they, he turned them tail to tail and put a torch between each pair of tails. And when he had set fire to the torches, he let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines and set fire to the stacked grain and the standing grain, as well as the olive orchards. Then the Philistines said, Who has done this? And they said, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he has taken his wife and given her to his companion. And the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. And Samson said to them, If this is what you do, I swear I will be avenged on you, and after that I will quit. And he struck them hip and thigh with a great blow, and he went down and stayed in the cleft of the rock of Edom. Then the Philistines came up and encamped in Judah and made a raid on Lehi. And the men of Judah said, Why have you come up against us? They said, We have come up to bind Samson, to do to him as he did to us. Then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Edom and said to Samson, Do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this that you have done to us? He said to them, As they did to me, so I have done to them. And they said to him, We have come down to bind you, that we may give you into the hand of the Philistines. And Samson said to them, Swear to me that you will not attack me yourselves. They said to him, No, we will only bind you and give you into their hands. We will surely not kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. When he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became as flax that has caught fire, and his bonds melted off his hands. And he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey and put out his hand and took it, and with it he struck a thousand men. And Samson said, with a jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with a jawbone of a donkey have I struck down a thousand men. As soon as he had finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone out of his hand, and that place was called Ramath-Lehi. And he was very thirsty, and he called upon the Lord and said, you have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant, and shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? 
And God split open the hollow place that is at Lehi, and water came out from it. And when he drank, his spirit returned, and he revived. Therefore the name of it was called En-Hakori. It is at Lehi to this day. And he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines twenty years. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. Father, we believe that the Holy Spirit has been given uh, so that we will understand, be able to understand spiritual things. And, and so we ask, O oh Holy Spirit, uh, I pray that you'd give me just the words to speak and that your, the voice of Jesus would be heard and that we would be able to understand your truths, these truths, uh, with clarity and, and love our Lord Jesus because of them. And so we pray in Jesus' name, amen. In the pantheon of uh, the world's most unlikely heroes, um, one of the most unlikely surely must be a, a man by the name of Oscar. Oscar was a known womanizer. He was a heavy drinker. He was a profiteer who made a fortune on shady deals. And yet after World War II, World War II the nation of Israel uh, publicly proclaimed him as a truly righteous person. Uh, why would they do that? Well, they did that because Oscar, Oscar Schindler, uh, came to uh, realize the great evil of the Nazis, and uh, though he was a member of the Nazi party himself, uh, at great risk to his own life, he was able to save uh, 1,200 Jews by employing them in his factories in Poland and, and Czech, uh, the Czech Republic. Uh, by the end of his life, he had uh, spent all of his fortune on the bribes that were necessary to pay off um, the, uh, the Germans, the, the Nazis, to keep them from uh, destroying his people. So he spent his, uh, risked his life and spent his, repu- his, spent his fortune saving uh, Jews. Uh, he, he might be one of the most unlikely heroes of, of the whole war. Uh, Samson has a lot in common with Oscar. Um, we've, we saw in chapter 14 that Samson uh, was really a selfish, impulsive young man, uh, driven by his sexual desires. He showed no concern for his parents' wishes. He had no interest in his divine calling. He had no desire to live for anyone or anything besides Samson. That seemed a pretty fulfilling life to him. Uh, He lived by his eyes, not by faith. He lived for the pleasures of Philistine women. That's what motivated him. And in chapter 15, something remarkable happens. Samson becomes a hero. Samson begins the salvation of Israel. As we look at Samson's war here in 15, we're going to see first the escalation, the betrayal, the battle, and then the awakening. So if you keep your notes, the escalation, the betrayal, the battle, and the awakening. As chapter 15 begins, we find Samson is still embroiled in the Timnah controversy. He he, um, decided to marry this girl from Timnah, but when she betrayed his trust, in anger he stomped off, killed 30 men of Ashkelon, and then sort of disappeared. And in 15 verse 1, we find Samson on his way back to Timnah to take his, his bride. Uh, he is completely unaware of what we've been already told in 14 verse 20, that Samson's wife was given to his companion who had been his best man. And so when Samson arrives, uh, the father blocks the door, says, no, um, I've given her away, tries to offer a consolation prize, uh, here's her younger sister, isn't she even be- uh, more beautiful? and uh, tries to pass her off as, uh, we, can make this, we can make this all go away. Well, Samson's not willing, and in hot anger, 
uh, stomps off. This time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. And he did them a great deal of harm. Samson uh, ingeniously gathers an army of foxes, ties them tail to tail with a, a torch uh, for each of them, and, uh, and sets them loose through all the standing grain, uh, the fields and the orchards of Timnah. Uh, so and you read in the text how devastating it was. The, the standing grain is, is torched, the uh, grain in the field, so the stuff that has already been harvested and gathered, and the, the, the grain in the field and the orchards are burned to the ground. This would be a devastating blow to the community. Uh, it is a de facto declaration of war. Things have escalated quickly. Well, the escalation continues as the Philistines determined to punish the source of the problem and who did this, and they're told Samson did this, and they're told why he did it, because uh, he's the son-in-law of this Tim Knight who gave Samson's wife to the best man, and it's just a mess. And the Philistines decide to go to the root of the problem, and they uh, burn the, um, Samson's ex-wife, his ex-wife and her, her whole father's family his household. Um, it's, a, it's a brutal, brutal time. Well, if they thought they were going to appease Samson by that, it failed miserably because uh, it uh, in just increases Samson's fury, and we're told he struck them hip and thigh with a great blow. We don't know exactly what it means that he struck them hip and thigh. Uh, some think, it's, a, some, some think it's, it's maybe a wrestling term where, uh, where you finally pin your opponent. Either way, it's clear that Samson... Um, has caused another devastating blow, and the battle is now on in a full fury. Uh, Samson's one-man war can no longer be ignored. Uh, the Philistines can't pass this off just as a, fam- a lover's quarrel or a family squabble. It's costing now too much. And, and so they gather the troops, and they advance against a, a town in Judah, uh, the town by the name of Lehi. Well, the men of Judah seem to be, uh, have been unaware of Samson's war, and, and so they ask the Philistines, why have you come up against us? And it's a very straightforward answer. We, we've come to bind Samson and do to him as he did to us. Well, we've come to a critical moment in the history of Israel. Remember, they're in Philistine bondage. They basically have given up any hope of deliverance. They are no longer crying out to the Lord. And the question now that's put in front of them is, uh, now that a deliverer has come, will they join with Samson or will they side with his enemies? And of course, we're told they side with the enemies, the betrayal. 3,000 of them go down to where Samson is. And it's, a, it's a, just a very sad speech. Do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? You, they don't come and say, Samson, we've been praying for you. We're so thankful you're here. How can we help? No, the, the thing is, don't you know that, that we're in bondage? Don't you know that, we have, that the Philistines rule over us? What have you done to us? What have you done to us? You've, you've placed us in jeopardy. Our rulers are going to be angry. They, they've come up against us. And Samson replies very simply, as, I, as they did to me, so I have done to them. And, they, and basically, what are you doing here? And they said, well, we've come to bind you so that we may give you into the hand of the Philistines. That's a really um, striking insight into the slavish decade to which Judah and Israel has sunk. The, their, their day of deliverance has come in the person of Samson, but instead of welcoming him, they blame him for stirring up trouble, and they bind him and hand him over to the enemy. 
I'd like to read a, a, a paragraph here from a Barry Webb, um, one of the commentators. Because I think it, it's very uh, insightful and helpful. Webb writes, We've come to a point in the book of Judges where to fully grasp the significance of what is happening, we need to reflect on how the book opened. Chapter 1. There, a united Israel inquired of Yahweh about how they should proceed in carrying out the mandate that Joshua had given them to complete the conquest of Canaan. So Joshua, before he died, said, the land is before you, the end, it's not, uh, we're not done fighting, so keep going and carry out God's uh, judgment and, and take the land. And so Israel, at the beginning of, of uh, the book of Judges, comes to the Lord in prayer and says, how shall we do this? The answer was that the tribe of Judah should lead them. And that if they did so, victory was assured. Now, here in chapter 15, there is no seeking direction from God. Israel's subjection to the Philistines is accepted as an established fact. There is no cry for deliverance. The only person who fights the Philistines is Samson, and he does so only when his attempt to intermarry with them is thwarted. And although he is destined eventually to begin to save Israel, the men of Judah, yes, Judah, see him only as a threat to the status quo and arrest him in order to hand him over uh, to their, full, um, the, their Philistine masters. The whole downward spiral of the book reaches rock bottom here. Surely only a remarkable act of God can save Israel now. And that's exactly right. This is Israel's darkest hour. The men who are supposed to be leading the fight are the men who betray Samson when he's engaged in the fight. And, and again, Samson's own motives are, are twisted at best. He's, the only reason he's fighting the Philistines in the first place is because he's been thwarted in his attempt to intermarry with them. It's, it's, it, these are dark, dark days. But, well, we, uh, we see once again that what men mean for evil, God means for good. God is at work behind the scenes. The story isn't being written fundamentally by the men of Judah or even by Samson himself, but God is orchestrating the unfolding of this story according to his own sovereign plan. I just love that through the story of Samson. There's no one here that's acting uh, honorably or, or uh, in any way that we could point to, and, and it's not praiseworthy. And yet, God is doing a great work of redemption. Well, uh, we come then to the battle. Samson's been bound with two new ropes. And when he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became as flax that had caught fire, and his bonds melted off his hands, and he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, put out his hand and took it, and with it he struck a thousand men. Uh, the story here has striking parallels to the story in chapter 14 of Samson and the young lion. If you remember, Samson was on his way and a young lion came roaring out to destroy him. And here we have the Philistine army coming, roaring, shouting uh, with the same uh, goal in mind. They, they are very eager to put Samson to death. And to humanize once again, this is undoubtedly the end of Samson. Nobody survives this, right? He's a, a solitary man. His hands are bound. He has no weapons. 
And there's a rushing horde of very angry Philistines armed to the teeth and intent on his death. Right? Even Tom Cruise could not escape such an impossible situation. This is hopeless. It's an impossible mission. It's meant to be seen as hopeless. Samson is doomed to die. But he doesn't die. The Spirit of the Lord rushes upon Samson. Samson receives supernatural power from on high. He rips the, the ropes from his hands. He sees a fresh jawbone of a donkey, and with that as a weapon, he destroys the lion once again. He kills a thousand men. The story is once again told in such a way that all the glory goes to God. This is so evidently not the work of a heroic man, but the work of a mighty God. All the power belongs to him. Webb says, the real hero here is not Samson, but the Lord who is in no way limited by the weakness of those whom he chooses to use. God is not limited by the weakness of those he chooses to use. Praise God that's true. Well, this is not just another heroic incident in the you know, life and days of Samson. This is, this is a climactic victory which marks his ascension now to the office of judge. This is the beginning of his 20-year reign as a judge over Israel. A Samson has finally arrived. He's finally grown up. He's, he's finally found his calling, taken his place. And to his credit, it seems like he's finally woken up to, to what this is all about. And so we see the awakening in verse 18. He was very thirsty. He called upon the Lord and said, You have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant. Shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? And uh, these verses, this is the climax of the story. The battle isn't the climax of the story. This isn't a nice afterthought. This is the point. This is where the story has been going. This is the crucial part of the story. Because this is the first time we read of Samson praying. It's the first time in the story anybody prays. It's a tremendously significant event. Samson has finally taken his eyes off himself and has turned to the Lord. And he prays a very wise and humble, informed prayer. You have granted me this great salvation. Samson gets it. He knows that this was not by his power. He, he knows that it was God and God alone. Uh, it was through Samson but only by the Spirit of God. He is God's servant. That's how he defines himself. You've given this great salvation uh, by the hand of your servant. He recognizes that God is doing something here. God is beginning a work of deliverance for Israel, just as had been promised by the angel to Samson's mother. And for the first time, then, it seems like Samson has become aware of this higher calling on his life. He's, he's, he's on planet earth to do something more than just pursue his passions. He realizes that his conflict with the Philistines, it's not just about his vendetta with this woman and her family, but God is pursuing vengeance. God is pursuing his own saving purposes. Uh, as one commentator says, this is Samson's finest moment. He finally gets it. He finally stands up as a savior of Israel. 
However, his great victory seems to be jeopardized by a basic necessity. Water. He's in a, a wilderness area. And um, he's very thirsty, the text says. He's, he's not just uncomfortable. He's at the point of death. Shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? And again, Samson realizes there's a lot at stake here, right? If, for him to die now is not just the end of his life. It's, in a sense, the end of Israel's life. It's the end of, of God's salvation uh, through Samson. Philistines will have the final triumph, right? They'll come and find his, his uh, dead body and parade it through their streets. Um, the enemy will have won. And so Samson cries out to the Lord in this time of personal national crisis. He cries out to the Lord, and now we've come to a moment of great significance. You see, crying out to the Lord is a theme, a repeated pattern all through the book of Judges. We, we noted that in our first sermon. It's, it's notable in this story, uh, Samson's story, because it's absent. But all through the, the time of the judges, the people would, would fall into sin, and they would be oppressed by their enemy, by, uh, by the word of God. They would be disciplined, and then they would cry out to the Lord. You can see that over and over again. Uh, chapter 3, verse 9, verse 15, 4, verse 3, 6, verse 6, just goes on through the book. And every time they cried out to the Lord and turned to the Lord, they were forgiven their sin, and God raised up a judge to deliver them from their enemies every time. Crying out to the Lord is a critical part of the story. You see, because it's, it's not just an act of desperation, it's an act of faith. One of the saddest stories I heard years ago. Um, people only cry out when they, when they expect to be helped. When they expect to deliver. I remember someone uh, saying that they had been through the orphanages in Russia. And just row upon row of beds with little children. And they said the most shocking thing of the whole experience was that there was no crying. Just quiet. And the reason isn't because the babies were all so well-loved and well-fed and well-cared for. The reason is they had stopped crying because no one ever came. There was no hope. There was no reason to cry out. Well, that's, that's where Israel is. You see, they, they just haven't just lost their freedom. They've lost their faith. They don't cry out because they don't believe that anyone will hear, anyone will help, anyone will answer. Webb says Israel has lost its voice because it had lost all hope of deliverance. And yet here in the dead, spiritually dead quiet of Israel, a baby starts to cry. One man has faith to call out to God for help. One man raises his voice and cries out to the Lord. One man has that, that sense that God is near and God is able and God is willing to help. And when he cries out to the Lord, the Lord hears and answers. The Lord split open the hollow place that is at Lehi, and water came out from it. And when he drank, his spirit returned, and he revived. Therefore, the name of it was called en Hakore. It is at Lehi to this day. Like Israel of old in the wilderness, right? When they complained, grumbled, we're dying of thirst. What does God do? He, he has Moses strike a rock, and water uh, comes from the rock, and, and God provides for his people there in the wilderness. Well, once again, God is providing for his people. Samson's spirit returns 
He's revived. I love the name of this stream, this spring. It's called En Hakore. It means the spring of him who called. The caller's spring. And the writer makes a point to say it's still at, it, it is at Lehi to this day. It's, it's not a momentary spring. It's still there. It's a spring that, that has never ran dry. It's a spring you could go to and, and, and you could drink. Well, what's the point of this story for God's people of old? What's the, what's the lesson for Israel? Well, the lesson would certainly be that God is, has moved towards them in His own love and mercy and graciously has intervened to rescue them from their impending death as a nation. Though they had given up hope and had lost their faith, God has not given up His saving purposes. Though they are completely unworthy, God is full of mercy and grace. And God has not forgotten them, and God has not abandoned them. He has raised up a Savior for them in the person of Samson. He still knows them. He still loves them. He will be faithful still to all the promises that He made to them. And the God who had delivered their forefathers in the wilderness was their God still today. All they needed to do was call. And they would find the Lord to be a never-ending fountain of life. It's a wonderful reminder for Israel. Salvation was at hand in the Lord their God. Well, what's the truth for the church today? Well, this is such a wonderful um, picture of a greater Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus came into this world, uh, this lost world, where there was no hope, uh, where people were not all over the world crying out to the Lord their God. Jesus came to his own, we're even told, and his own received him not. Uh, people were, uh, this world was unworthy of him, and yet, and yet Jesus Christ comes into this world because he loved this world. That's what the text says. Right? God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Jesus, of course, was betrayed, as Samson was, just much worse. Uh, Jesus betrayed by his people as they, just like in Samson's day, what are you doing? You're making the, Ro the Romans mad. Uh, you're making our oppressors angry. You're going to cause trouble for us. And so they put him to death. Better that one man die than the whole nation. That was the argument. Exactly as it was in Samson's day. This was Israel's darkest hour when they gave Jesus Christ, the Son of God, over to Pilate to be put to death. And yet Jesus in that moment is manifested as the ultimate agent of God's salvation. Jesus took on the forces arrayed against us, the, the enemies of the devil and our sin. Uh, he fought with no weapons except the weapon of his righteous life as he offered it up in death. But in his death and in his victorious resurrection, Jesus has opened a fountain in the desert of this world. Love that image, right? There is a stream. There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God. There's, throughout the Bible, you find this, this, this theme of, of water flowing. Water flowing. Friends, God in Jesus Christ has opened up a fountain of life in this desert of this world. He is the spring of those who call. He's en Hakori. The spring of all those who call in. Remember when Jesus was at the well uh, with the woman in John chapter 4? 
And um, they're talking about water. And Jesus says, if you knew who it was that was talking to you, you would ask him for water. And he would have given you water uh, that, that never runs dry, water everlasting life. And Jesus says this to her, whoever drinks of the water I give him will never be thirsty again. But this water will well up to eternal life. That's what Jesus has for the world. Water, life, in the midst of death and darkness. And all we need to do is call. The invitation is throughout Scripture, Isaiah 55, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. I love that the Bible ends with that same invitation. The Spirit and the Bride, this is Revelation twenty-two seventeen. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Isn't that a wonderful invitation? Are you thirsty? Do you know of any thirsty people in your life? People who are desperately looking in all the wrong places for life and it's just bringing ruin and disaster and and hurt and harm? Isn't it wonderful that that we can offer life, the life that Jesus Christ brings, and we can offer it without, without cost, without price. The Spirit and the Bride, the church, that's our message. We say to, to the world, come. Let him who is thirsty come. This is why we exist as a church, to invite people to come. Right? We, 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 we drink of it ourselves, and we invite others to come. A good name for a church, I was thinking, would be Lehi. Wouldn't it be a good name for a church? Uh, the place of Anhakori. The, the, the spring for those who call. It's such a wonderful gospel truth. I had the blessing this morning in talking in the foyer with a young woman who has just been converted this week. Just a precious reminder that that's what God is about in the world today. God is about bringing people to Jesus Christ, the living water. God is about giving this living water to, to sinners who weren't looking and weren't asking, um, just like he did for us. And as we drink, we come alive. We're revived. I don't know where you are tonight. If you've never come to that fountain, Jesus invites you. The Bible invites you to come and drink. Come to Jesus Christ. And drink to your heart's content. And drink day after day. It's not a one-time thing. This is how we live. We drink of our Lord Jesus Christ. And maybe you've been a Christian for a long time and you're just really tired. And you're really thirsty. It's been a long time since you just sat down with your Lord and remembered who He was and what He's accomplished for you and all that He's promised to you all that he's offered to you and gives to you by his spirit, through his word. And that Jesus will say to you, says to you again tonight, come and drink. Open your Bible. Get on your knees. Drink. Because there's life in Jesus Christ. And then let's invite our lost neighbors to come. Let's invite them to experience this water that wells up unto everlasting life. May God grant it. Amen. O Jesus, joy of loving hearts, thou fount of life, 
thou light of men. From fullest bliss that earth imparts, we turn unfilled to thee again. Thy truth unchanged has ever stood. And thou savest those that on thee call. To them that seek thee, thou art good. To them that find thee all in all. O oh Lord Jesus, I thank you that you are a spring for those who call. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are in the business of giving living water to dead sinners and to thirsty saints so that our spirits can return and we will be revived. Lord, there's so many of us who need to be revived. We need to experience once again the joy of our salvation. We need to experience again, Lord, the truth of your love for us and all your grace to us and and all your promises to us so that it drives away our fears. It removes our shame and guilt and sets us free to sing and, and worship, to be glad and to share. Jesus, we ask that by your Spirit, Lord, lead us to the water and, and then teach us to drink. And, and I pray, Lord, that we would, we would find these words to be true. That when you invite sinners to come, you invite us to come and live as we drink of our Lord. And so, Lord, give us that blessing. And give us the blessing then of inviting others to come. That we would, Lord, have the joy of seeing men and women who were lost in sin come alive as they drink of Christ, and we'll give you all the praise and all the glory. Amen. We're going to respond singing Wonderful Grace of Jesus, number 467. Let's stand together and sing.
to the life that God has called you to, to love him and to serve him with all of your heart, uh, trusting in his love for you, go with his blessing, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you and abide with you. Till Christ come again, amen.